and welcome to another episode of Radio Zaddy. This one, I'm going to call it the birthday edition because it's recently been my birthday. I'm now fantastic, fabulous, 30 years old. I think that's like a good, nice, round age to be. Yes, it is. Yeah, Round numbers. Uh, Happy birthday, Hannah. Thank you. Thank you. How do you feel? How does it feel? I feel feel regal. I feel glorious. Uh, I, I mean, I feel very much the same as I did just before uh <laughs> the immediate build up I've, I've i've known it's been coming for a while yeah so it's not like a huge surprise that's how time um, works yeah so that's cool yeah that's cool yeah you didn't so, feel like the tipping point or you haven't got well, any wisdom to people offer. always like oh my god such a big one and Saturn i mean turns. it's fine or whatever you know it's just it's happened it has happened yeah. And uh, I quite enjoyed uh, my 30th. Um, yeah. Obviously, you were there. That was I great. was there. Uh, you were one of the chosen four. Um, and oh, yeah. it was it was, uh, it was lovely. Yeah, we took you over to Hebden Bridge, oh. the lesbian capital of the world. It was incredible. Yeah. And uh, we were at my parents' house, just kind of chilling. And I mean, it's not like there's not really lockdown restrictions, but it still feels a little bit like you don't want to get big numbers. And also, I hate huge crowds. <laughs> it's um, a good way to just pare down all the socialising. So, like, like, yeah, oh. it's a real excuse to be like, I just, yeah, just you know is all people are still being safe and i don't want you can really filter out the... <laughs> yeah um but if this is your uh, first time visiting us at radio zaddy um here's a little lowdown of what we do uh, each week days and i will secretly research a topic that we believe is has a gay theme or has like well-known gayness queerness transness undertones. anything at undertones overtones midtones and um we don't tell each other what we research so each week then we come together, spend about half an hour telling each other what we've learned. Now, it's never going to be very deeply, deeply in-depth, but it should be like a really good introduction. And hey, if you like it, you can go away and research it some more. But it's just kind of about broadening our queer horizons, let's say. Um, I'm interested in many things. I'm not good at in-depth research. I'm good at learning little bits about lots of things. So hey, that's how it It's a box pop. It's a story to tell at a party. Exactly. Fun things to tell around a campfire. Conversation stuff. Did you know? Yeah. So I actually think Daisy is me to go first this week, right? Let's Um, go. And do you have any idea? Any idea? I always like to find out. No, I don't. So I'm going to talk to you today about chemsex parties. Whoa, okay. Yeah, is that rogue? I don't Um, know. No, let's go. Okay. I don't know much about it at all. You don't know? Do you you have an idea what chemsex is? uh, I feel like it was popular maybe in the kind of 90s with the rave scene, maybe like definitely in the kind of male gay scene in kind of London. Interesting. Okay, so just to start off, some of the sources I used were priorygroup.com, rainbowproject.org. The new scientists have an article article about what is chemsex and why the UK government is worried about it. AIDSmap.com also have in, uh, informationals about uh, chemsex. London Friend also has information about it because they offer uh, antidote services, which is like a kind of support service for people trying to get off or just kind of manage their okay. usage. And uh, I watched a documentary by the BBC called uh, The Rise of Chemsex on London's Gay Sea. And that was quite a short one. Just watched that while I was on the treadmill. And Healthline, again, have some stuff. Now, so... Just dropping in that you were on the treadmill. I, I, I see I was on the treadmill. <laughs> well, I really hate cardio, so I have to find things to distract myself from the fact that I'm on the treadmill. So, I I, like, yeah. I hate cardio. cardio. It's such a thing everyone says. I can't even get on the treadmill. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, yeah, I just walk really fast. Yeah. I, don't even, I don't even run sometimes. I just walk fast. You just do that OK <laughs> Go video. It's like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> jumping from one to another. <laughs> and people are like, you can't 
can't use more than one at a time. I'm like, I, I don't think I need, you understand what's going on I here. need all four of these. And I <laughs> yes, I do need to wear my three-piece suit. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, chemsex isn't necessarily something I have a good segue for. Uh, so I just had a curiosity about it. There's like, I knew that it was part of the queer scene in some way. Like, it's a word that you hear. It's something that I know some people who've been through rehab for chemsex. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you know, I don't think, feel like it's necessarily my place to be like, oh... Tell me about your rehab and your obviously mm. quite um, painful experience with that. But what I am doing is I'm reading a book called Under the Dome by okay. Stephen King. And there's a massive meth lab in it. Okay. And I, kn- I knew, slash, like, quote, unquote, I knew, thought that uh, crystal meth is one of the drugs used in chemsex. And oh, I was okay, kind of okay. thinking about that. And I was like, you know what, actually... I don't think I, I even know if that's true. So I started looking it up and I kind of got deeper and deeper and deeper. Deeper and deeper. deeper, and deeper. Anyway, I was reading a lot about it and I wasn't totally sure about if I was right with my assumptions, presumptions about the use of drugs in Kensex. So I thought it was probably best to educate myself on that. And let's start with a little bit of background. Chemsex is specifically the term used for, uh, sorry, the term for the use of substances immediately before or during sexual activity to facilitate prolonged or in- to intensify sexual experience, mainly by some communities of men who have sex with men, MSM. Typically four main substances used in chemsex. These are crystal methamphetamine, crystal meth, methadrone, GHB or GBL, which are uh, derivatives of the same, the same drug, or ketamine, okay? And uh, using these drugs while having sex is, is, using drugs and sex is not unique to gay men, like at all. And I cannot tell you how many people from all walks of life have been like, oh my God, you should have sex on MD, it's so amazing. Or like sex on weed. And I just, I'm like, that's like, that's fine, that's you. But, you know, in the same way that I'm not going to tell you not to do that, there's no, like, don't tell me to do it. Yeah. You know, it's like kind of works both ways. But yeah, drugs and sex have been quite intertwined um, across societies, you know, since the swing in 60s. -hmm. Straight, heterosexual, uh, queer, and any kind of walk of life. It's always, people always find ways to make sex better. Drugs help that in quite a lot of ways. But more recently, it's come to the attention of the media that there's a subsection of drugs and sex um, within the gay male community that is kind of increasing in regularity, increasing in danger as well. Mm-hmm. Especially okay. with like, you know, the four drugs that I mentioned haven't always been that readily available on the market. Not in the same way they're like, you know, alcohol yeah. is, is yeah. like a drug that people always go off and do sort of risky things on. Crystal meth and things like that. Only in the last 10 years have become really readily available. Mm. I feel like they're high, highly addictive and kind of... They're the kind of in the in the scary category. Yeah, you know what I mean, yeah, they're, they're like <laughs> less recreational, they're not, more. They're not like small time drugs. Yeah, they're yeah. like quite serious drugs. And the aim of, the aim of taking them though is during chemsex, it enables people to have sex that can last for hours or days. So people can be going for days and they don't need to eat or sleep because of the the effect of these drugs. Okay, it lowers your inhibitions, sexual inhibitions. It increases your libido and your confidence, and like commit, it makes you feel invul- like invulnerable. Mm. So there's this sense of like you become a bit of a sex god okay. on these drugs. And while chemsex is appearing to grow with frequency, and the media coverage is definitely helping that kind of idea that it's becoming more popular, it's actually important to note that the ph- phenomenon of chemsex is not the norm for most gay men um, in Britain that we're aware of, and even in major areas like London, where chemsex is relatively prevalent, it's not all or even the majority of gay men. The point is, like, you know, about a fifth of gay men have tried chemsex in the last okay. five years. Okay. Okay. But it's not something they necessarily do on the reg, and there's like a small number of people that do get 
like into into quite a regular habit of using them you know um it sounds like a few days at a time it sounds like there's quite a lot of commitment involved yeah. and not everyone has time for that yeah, yeah. um clear the schedule yeah exactly three days jesus <laughs> um so it's driven quite a lot through geosexual apps which are like grinder which okay. you know you see who's close by who you can get to very quick interchanges very short conversations there's a lot of like slang involved okay. which means it's quite difficult to track on apps so that people will just send a text being like p and p PNP, which is party and play, or party with a capital T, um, which is T is like crystal methadone, uh, methamphetamine. And a lot of people are introduced to it by the fir- uh, for the first time through these apps. And there's a specific trend, though, as I mentioned, in the last 10 years, these drugs have become more readily available. But because it's only been 10 years, the long term impacts of health and health effects are not really readily understood. Right. But specifically with things like ketamine, like some people have to have their bladder removed because it, it really messes up your, your bladder and I think your kidneys as well. It can be um, quite da- damaging to the body long for long term use. But isn't like part of the experience, you know, like you hear things about like, you know, K-holes and like those experiences don't sound particularly pleasant to happen while you're having a party or while you're having a yeah. sexual experience so i think like if you're just doing ketamine you might want like have like k-holing is actually some people's aim but right, right. and that's like if you're on ket but if you're doing it in this sense they promise like things like uh, sustained arousal okay. lack of inhibition increased confidence feelings of instant rapport with with uh, sexual partners adventurousness lowered fear improved stamina you know that's all really enticing and because it's like four drugs you don't necessarily do one at a time you, you'll do a uh, like a sort of mix of them i think in or, one kind of session or one weekend or oh maybe i'm wrong about that actually. i got the idea that like you might do one or two of them together Okay. Um, but actually, I remember that G, which is the GHB GBL, you're not really supposed to mix at all. Mm. Um, but ketamine, for example, does is like a mild anaesthetic. It, yeah, well, yeah. it is an anaesthetic. Yeah. And what that does is it makes things not hurt so much. And so you know you might want to have really rough sex and not have it hurt. Mm. Um, and that can cause like that can give you that. But yeah. then equally, it causes you to maybe sustain damage um, to your body without realizing yeah. it because it's because it is a um, and well, it sounds like a very you know very fine balance but you know because it is chemical after all and you know the balance of what you're kind of putting into your body and what your body can kind of handle you know with the increased kind of the kind of more natural yeah. um endorphins or adrenaline that might be mm. already you know pumping through your body yeah and the trouble is like these drugs do promise something that sounds amazing it sounds really great you know you become like a sex god but it does lead like with any drug any mind-altering drug you know alcohol for example is really big for this it causes people to take more risks okay because you feel you know your inhibitions are gone you press you do what's called uh, pressing the fuck it button you think ah fuck it i'll just do it you know Mm. and it influences people to engage in much more risky behavior and so i'm going to run through some of the risks like i'm not I'm not too interested in going into the risks in like particularly um, deep detail because I, I'm not about sort of doomsaying or scaremongering or anything like that. I just think that it's important to know that there are risks with with um, this kind of practice, and mm. so I'll just I'll just list them. Especially if it's on yeah on the rise, it's good to know. Yeah, it's good to know, and like oh my god, there's so much information out there. Like if there's some, if you are concerned about it or your use, like absolutely go and, and find a resource that works for you. But I was I was interested in this kind of. I've always been quite interested in like medical science um, and things like that. So here we go. So simply reducing inhibitions, people are less likely to use condoms during sex uh, because they're like, ah, fuck it. It feels better, whatever. I've heard it feels better. Um, And this gives you an increased risk of catching HIV or hepatitis, the two main ones um, associated with these kind of risky behaviours in terms of not 
not being protected um, and any other sexually transmitted disease. But, you know, hepatitis and HIV are some of the major concern ones. Um, the rest of them you can kind of cure. Even if you're on PrEP or PEP, pre-exposure or post-exposure drugs, uh, you may forget that you've taken them or, no, sorry, forget to take them, especially if you're going for mm. days, you know, days yeah. on end, or you forget to take them. Or some people yeah. specifically decide not to take it because they're like, oh, I'm having too much fun. Like, oh, I just can't be bothered to take right, it right. for days and again that increases the risk of catching hiv and hiv you know it's not it's not the death sentence that it was but you know it is if you catch it it does change your life you know for a lot of people it does change their whole life and their ability to have like to to relate to intimacy in the same way afterwards um but you know it's it's not the same kind of stigma that it always was um you just have to have an increased awareness yeah it's just um, it's just being aware like if that of how to yeah of how to manage it and how to have it in your life and yeah. It, it to be part of your life yeah. now yeah and if you don't have it you don't have to think about it but if you do have it you have to think about it and if you like if you don't want to have to think about it then it's putting in place things to protect yourself or what you need to do basically mm. but i think the stigma is definitely still um it's definitely still there even though you can live a, a very long and healthy life yeah. um, people people don't want to disclose it because it does have stigma you know yeah and even if you're you know untraceable undetectable and you know it's still something that you everyone should know you know, it, people should know their status. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And again, like some of these drugs are injected. Sharing needles is another mm. way to get hepatitis or HIV. And some of the drugs, like I said, are a mild anaesthetic. It can increase people's aggression levels um, or knock people out. Some surveys and polls of uh, men who have sex with men have rep- reported higher instances of sexual aggression, non consensual sex acts while they've been at these camp parties because if they're knocked out, and other people are high as balls, they're not going to, like, there's a lowered respect for boundaries and things like that. If you're not in your right mind, mm-hmm. or if you're just, like, slightly disassociated from yourself, there's also reports of, really tragically, like, reports of people going to these chem parties, getting overdosed on purpose, and then people filming, like, what is essentially rape porn of them, knocked out. And, you know, so there's are risks there. If you're going with people that you don't know, that that, that is a risk. Mm-hmm. That's a risk for anyone going to have sex with people they don't know, obviously. Yeah. But with this involved, there is an anaesthetic there is a higher risk of mm. um, being taken advantage of and g as well is a date rape drug drug right you know, that can knock you out too so to be to be careful and to look after yourself go with people you know or like set boundaries set ground rules that sort of thing and again you don't necessarily if, if you're using ones that work as a mild anaesthetic you can't feel it you know so it's it's you're not going to know necessarily until later or mm. ever for mm. some people and then there's the risk of dependency you know there's a um, emotional dependency you know if, if you only feel good having sex on chems uh, you feel like a sex god you know if you've got any kind of like uh self-consciousness self-hatred like shame doing doing these chems can make you feel like that doesn't matter anymore and then if you try and have sex without them afterwards like it's not going to feel the same and it can be a real like crutch for some people who have these like crippling um issues with having sex with sexual intimacy and so then it's like an emotional dependency i can't have sex without being on chems you know and there's a physical dependency so when you're taking g ghb or gbl for a certain number of days in a row or frequently enough you can develop a physical dependency which is like Actually, there's a um, certain symptoms that you can look up, which include like shivering and things like that, to know if you are dependent. And coming off it can be very, diff- very, very dangerous. So you shouldn't try and come off G cold turkey, right. and you shouldn't try and come off it yourself. Um, what they say is like you can you can have seizures or a heart attack or die if you try to come off when you become physically dependent. So they say uh, as a general rule, like don't try and wean yourself don't try and like wean yourself off unless you know that you're not addicted go like keep taking your dosage go to a support center a medical professional and they will help calculate the lower dose until it's safe to come off right 
no shame, like no judgment, nothing. Like just come to a medical professional, they will help you like come off it. And finally, um, there's a risk of overdose with any of these. One of the issues with chemsex is that like some of these drugs, the fine line between having a fucking great party time and seizure and death is a very small line, mm. you know, especially with like if you're some of them people put like a few drops, a few mils of drug into a thing of coke and then you sort of sip it throughout the night. Yeah. But if you forget and you take a big swig, that can cause an overdose. Yeah, like, yeah. You, you need to know your limits, know your like dosage and, and really stick to that to be safe. Mm. And again, like anything that keeps you safe, you know, sticking to your rules, like make sure you know your correct dosage, have safe words. Those any any sort of like safe sex practices are really good. Um, and why is it so prevalent in the gay male community? Like, I guess that is a difficult question. Mm, um, yeah. And it's it's one I asked a lot. And I, as I was reading the articles, I had like this really sort of icky feeling of the way some of them were written. It was sort of like, well, these men are these men are immoral and bad, and that's why they do it. And I was sort of like, that's, that's not a justification. It's or, not yeah. that's not right or fair or or factual or factual. Yeah. yeah. So um, as I was reading through, I was finding some that had like more compassionate views on it. And yeah, sorry, I was having this kind of flashbacks to. Well, not flashbacks because I wasn't alive then, but like I was reminded of the way people used to talk about HIV, yeah, and being like, "Oh, it's the the gay disease," you know. It's because they're all like, "God hates them," and that's why they've got it, you know. It's kind of that sort of judgment, judgy feel to it, which mm. you know, blame doesn't help anyone with yeah. anything. It yeah. doesn't help anyone change their behavior. It doesn't help anyone like seek help or like have a good time either, mm. you know. With any kind of subculture, if there there is such a kind of lack of understanding, just because it you know it is a subculture, it's not in the mainstream, and people only hear about these things through yeah the the bad stories right yeah, and the, the, and the things stories, that go wrong. Going wrong yeah and a lot of the time you know the party scene is a huge part of queer culture and so of course there's going to be bad experiences in there mm. but there is still this yeah there is still kind of a celebration to be had and of course things can yeah kind of get out of hand and you only hear about the the times that have gone mm. go wrong and it kind of yeah it can kind of taint just like the whole anything that brings shame scene. on it is just not going to help yeah it's not going to help at all, anyone. Anyway, even yeah, if you're gay trying men to had people doing it, like fair share of um, shame. Yeah. yeah, and you know, I was I was watched uh, on a, on a sort of side note. Like I was watching this documentary about um, prep and uh, PEP pre and post exposure treatment for HIV, and this person was like, uh, the interviewer was, you know, and in a devil's advocate way, was like, well, why why don't you just wear condoms? And this guy he was interviewing was very rightly said like the message of using condoms has always been out there. It's been out there since the sixties. It's been out there way longer, mm-hmm. and the fact is. It just doesn't work. Just just using condoms yeah. isn't enough. It's another to stop method people. of prevention, but yeah, it's really a method, it. but it's not. It's not the be all and end all, and yeah, just, it's not one hundred percent effective. It never has been. Yeah, because they break, right? So yeah. having these additional measures to put in place, like taking pre and post exposure uh, medication, and also using condoms or whatever, like taking extra precautions, is also really helpful. And so equally, like you can't just say, oh, when you when you do chems, like make sure you use condoms. Like it's not just that simple. It's never been that mm. simple, and um, ultimately the message is out there, but it doesn't always work for anybody. It doesn't even work for you know straight people to just use straight people yeah. to just use condoms. People still get pregnant because condoms like it's an extra step, right? Effective. It's just it's yeah. just not the thing. Yeah, uh, it's not not that it's not the thing. It's just like it's only one thing, and yeah. you can't only give people one option. Mm. Um, anyway, so uh, I was listening. To, I was watching this documentary on the treadmill, as you, as I mentioned. <laughs> um, and there was this doctor at fifty six Dean Street, which is like this massive sexual health clinic in London. And he was saying like. Look, when you grow up queer, you have to, you hide, you don't have to, but a lot of us hide our true self. Yeah. So we hide ourselves 
deep, deep down, suppress it down for most people. And if you feel like you're hidden, any form of intimacy, love, affection that's shown towards you from your family is in fact the exact opposite of intimacy because it's not directed at you as a real, as the genuine version of you. Not seeing the whole, yeah, the whole not picture. Not seeing the whole picture. And what that does is it can lead you with a feeling that of not knowing how to be intimate, okay? Not knowing how to be loved, not knowing how to let our guard down and enjoy the moment. Or and it can leave us with like crippling self-hatred, image issues, body image issues. That's a big thing in queer culture. Low or no self-esteem. And all these things don't remove our need for intimacy. Mm. They just are a barrier to intimacy, okay? So pe- people have many complex issues and still want to be loved and have sex and be touched Mm. and so people crave intimacy in some form to learn how to do it and if you can't do it sober and someone says hey man just take this drug and it'll be great you'll have all the sex in the world you'll have an absolutely fantastic time like why wouldn't you try that you know if if you're you know it's it's a go-to or a last resort for a lot of people some people it is the first thing or some people it's like a desperate yeah. attempt to get some intimacy and according to a recent editorial in the British Medical Journal some people said that they don't uh, they do it they do do it to cope with internalised homophobia and negative feelings about their sexuality mm. and I'm sure that some people are in it just for a fucking good time like I'm sure yeah. that there are some people There's who so cope many, with yeah. it really well a lot of people can take drugs and not be addicted to it but the fact is a lot of queer people have addiction issues because of this issue of intimacy and not knowing how to accept ourselves or love ourselves without something else you know something to help Mm. us cope and all this to say you know it's it is okay to go out and do drugs and have fun like it is and i'm all for people expressing themselves in any way they want to but the difficulty comes you know when the fun stops you know when it stops being fun when it becomes something that you just have to do to get by Mm. and it stops you being able to work or like have have friendships and have relationships and that's you know that's when um when people do need to reach out you know, mm. it is something that some people can do. Yeah. Like some... Everything has to have a kind of safe environment to to happen, like all experimentation. And it has, to, you know, to keep things, to for them to remain recreational mm. and fun and enhance an experience rather than, you know, take away from and, you know, reduce an experience to something painful, shameful, any anything like that. Yeah. You have to have the structure around where people are, yeah, not shame yeah, free from shame and and safe. Yeah. You know, that's it comes as part of the safer sex. Having chemsex isn't always going to be dangerous and or a death sentence yeah. if you do it responsibly. Yeah, if you do it responsibly you the, and you're like yeah, in a safe place. To, sure. Yeah. Like if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. Yeah, it comes down to like is it what you want to do? Because if you don't and you're just doing it because of some other reason, like there are loads of people out there that really want to help. And most of the people that I was looking up who run these uh, like antidote services, services to help people like manage their use, not necessarily even like to say you need to stop. It's like management and like make it like working out. Do I want to stop? Like, is this for me? Like, or I'm struggling and I, you know, I need a bit of support. You know, there are people that have been through it. The people that know what it's like know how difficult that journey yeah. is. And they're not just do-gooders. They're just, like, really compassionate people yeah. that love their community and want their community to be safe and, mm. and not hurting, you yeah. know? And so I think that's really important to note that, like, you're not going to go and get some, like, Bible-thumping person being like, you're, it's a sin, you're going to hell, like, blah, blah, blah. Mm. It's like, it's people who genuinely people do love you. Even yeah. though they don't know you, they love you still. 
I don't know that sounds lame, but that's how it feels, right? Yeah. From what I was reading, and like these informationals, I'm not like you need to stop. It's like if you think you want to stop, if you want mm. to get help, like here's the way to get it. And yeah, it, it like it is really complex. And I think that especially with the way that drugs work and the way they interact with the body, like I was quite interested in looking up that sort of thing, but I was like, I just can't do an amateur science lesson here because it's like <laughs> it's not that helpful. But I just hadn't realised that that it was so intertwined with our kind of very fundamental experiences yeah, yeah, people, yeah. specifically with our shame and not being able to be intimate and mm. you know I'd had people talk to me before and say like oh yeah gay man like gay men do, can have this really difficult relationship with intimacy especially because like because of the way the world views masculinity and like what is manly what is acceptable and the idea of like it not being okay to love another man or to be want to be or want mm. to be touched mm. even mm. and then you know how do you navigate that world when there's been no guidance no mm. role modeling no nothing and then you know i mean how many of us have needed to have a drink at the pub in order yeah. to talk to someone we've been like so many of looking at or like hoping yeah, about yeah. and just been like oh do a bit of dutch courage like how is yeah. that different, so really? many of the the queer spaces um were historically kind of very much centered around parties and alcohol and mm. drugs because those were the places where inhibitions were you know and a lot you know there have been people who have had queer experiences you know while at parties and that's that's their one-off and mm. some people see it as kind of an you know an escape mm. from reality and there is there needs to be so there is obviously a rise in um sober spaces and sober parties yeah. um in the last five six years there's i'm seeing a lot more of that um and i think that is that is great as well mm. um mm. and there does need to be you know spaces that are not exclusively yeah not exclusively kind of party driven and party you know with a capital p i guess like party yeah there needs to be spaces where people can um access community you know and fun and expression without the you know without the the you know the external injectors like you know just injecting something in and yeah sometimes the only way we've been able to find each other is in these kind of dark clubs where maybe not everyone has our best intentions at heart it kind of comes par for the course and there's been lots of talk about like you know people being overweight and and not liking themselves as a teenager coming to the queer scene and then like getting really buff and like living their best life but actually like there's a different kind of shame that comes with also being out and being like oh i'm not the right kind of body and then it's and then you know all these additional levels of shame come into it and it's it's, it's a very complicated thing and i think a lot of people don't realize like how much is going on for queer people and how much we have to deal with yeah. and acceptance yeah. and support need to be throughout yes you know wo- woven throughout the, each other yeah throughout the community and it yeah. needs to be very much like practice what you preach and is everybody welcome and yeah. is everybody safe and, and are, you, are, looking you, looking, are you looking out for yeah your people and yeah. kind Maybe. of age old you're not free into it we're all free kind of thing exactly exactly a bit of a downer but i hope it was helpful maybe a bit informative no it's very something today yeah, thank you so much, Hannah. It's okay. Uh, right, so what have I got for you? Mine is a, yeah, mine's quite a light-hearted um, episode. So I'm going to kind of, I'm going to talk good. about uh, recreation. I'm going to talk about sort of kind of return to the kind of the, the more larky time. Return to the more larky time, you say? So uh, what I've, uh, what I have titled my episode is a... Uh, Sculpture and Scandal. Oh, Sculpture and um, Scandal. Right, it. so Hannah, we are both, um, as this is the birthday edition, the birthday yeah. episode, uh, we are both uh, queer Libras. Oh, yes, we are. Born in the delightful month of October. Yes. Yeah, yeah. October is pretty great for a lot of reasons. Uh, you've got all those lovely scrunchy leaves starting to fall. Yep. Um, a very good harvest moon. That's oh, the yes, very nice. Conkers. 
Conkers. Conkers are excellent. Uh, lots of wholesome autumnal traditions. There's obviously Halloween, yeah. uh, which involves substantial uh, dressing up, a notorious queer pastime, mm-hmm. uh, as well as uh, revisiting many a cult classic uh, movie. Uh, but also, so last last week uh, on the queer calendar marks the birthday, another birthday of an interesting person who I had not heard about before. Okay. So I started to dig and unpack a bit about her life. Um, so let's just pretend it's the 9th of October. Yeah. Um, and oh, wow. Mm. wish a very happy birthday to Harriet Hosmer. Happy birthday, Harriet. Happy, per- happy birthday, Hattie Hosmer. <laughs> so a bit about um, her. Uh, Harriet Goodhue Hosmer was born in October 1830. Okay. Um, and was an American... Yeah, quite old, and was an American neoclassical sculptor. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of her? No, not at all, actually. I haven't heard of her either. Um, and I looked in my Gay Book of Days, uh, A Gay for Every Day of the Year yep. book, um, and uh, so Harriet Hosmer was largely considered to be the most distinguished female sculptor of the 19th century, mm. um, and opened uh, opening the door to the profession f- uh, for women at the time. Yeah. Uh, so a real kind of trailblazer. Mm-hmm. Um, she was a groundbreaking and ambition, uh, ambitious professional artist. Mm-hmm. Professional artist. So professional, paid to do paid it. Paid to not do. Not just like painting in the shed. Dabble. Yeah. Um, although there was a lot of painting in the shed. Oh, it happens. Um, a bold feminist and famed for her many technical innovations uh, later in her career as well, uh, including the process for turning limestone uh, into marble, which was pretty Whoa. fucking useful. Squish it really hard or something? Uh, which was, of course, <laughs> a like, really valuable material yeah. for sculptors at the time. Yes. If you can turn, you know, regular rego limestone. Into, yeah. <laughs> um, so she was obviously, yeah, great kind of technician um, as well as a, an amazing sculptor sculptor so a bit but and she actually had quite an interesting life as well um so not only i didn't know much about um sculptors especially 19th century neoclassical sculptors not really a topic i'd come across before um not being an art historian or any kind of historian Uh, that's my (laughs) caveat um so harriet's mother um and three of her siblings all tragically died um of tuberculosis during her childhood um so had a bit of a rough start mm. um childhood trauma um go there? but she uh, she did remain close with her father who encouraged her to pursue a number of physical and larky activities uh, including uh, rowing mm-hmm. fishing Ooh. horse riding oh. uh, and hunting all of which were considered yeah. you know quite boyish pursuits at the time um but in his mind like this was his way of kind of her combating the disease mm. um he didn't want make her strong make her strong. get through exactly yeah, yeah um so he wanted her to combat um tuberculosis by remaining physically fit and active uh he encouraged her to be somewhat of a, a tomboy in this yeah. respect i guess you'd call that call her, what she was that at the time uh and it enabled her to kind of strengthen also her um creative artistry of which her lifelong career was founded on so her wikipedia entry uh, also mentions her traveling alone in the western wilderness oh, um and gosh. visiting uh, the lakota tribe who are a uh, native american tribe mm. living in north and south but i did actually yeah i struggled to find much information on that but basically like she was an adventurer to say mm. the least she was like an old school adventurer yeah yeah she would you know and, go visit the tribe and very like independent like she just took herself off into yeah. the woods met with tribes and took herself to the lakes and would swim in the lakes and go to the woods and kind of hunt and Mm. ride solo on horseback and it was you know that did break quite a lot of kind of traditional rules at the time yeah what what i do find interesting is this yeah it's quite a i think it's a pretty queer response to trauma that's what i'm going to take from it okay cool women seeking time outdoors as we've talked about um you've talked about in previous episodes um yeah she spent a lot of time immersed in nature Mm -hmm. in her childhood kind of after those traumatic things happened i think it was before the age of 
12. Yeah, she was accustomed to kind of immersing herself in nature, you know, hiking in the surrounding forests, swimming in the Charles River near her home in Massachusetts. And from a young age, she would sculpt model animals in the clay pits near her house. Nice. So she would have access to this clay. Just clay pit and just go in and yeah, scoop she would it the, up. Yeah, Harriet in the clay pit, um, making little animals. So now, the United States, not a great... Not great on women's rights. Nope. Uh, in the nineteenth century, or now, or now yeah. Uh, particularly in the nineteenth century. Um. So yeah, as I said, like women weren't really supposed or allowed to pursue careers in sculpture. It just wasn't the done thing. Um. They were certainly not provided the same education as men. Uh, when it came to the arts. So much of the art produced by women uh, would have been kind of relatively small scale, something um, that could be done at home, uh, and was viewed as yeah more of a pastime than a kind of respectable career. Um, Hosma was thus forbidden to work with live models because it just she didn't have access to it. Uh, but spent time studying anatomy uh, oh. to familiarise herself with the human form. Uh, luckily, studying anatomy, studying anatomy, looking at bodies, looking at bodies and bums and tums. Um, so handily, uh, Hattie's father was a physician, uh, Mister Mister Hiram Hosma, um, and the two of them studied anatomy together, um, and so he kind of gave her access to some of these like anatomical um, models and, um, and actual maybe waxworks, I don't bodies. know. Yeah. yeah, maybe actual. But isn't that what like um, Da Vinci did as well? He did dissections. Her um, understanding of like the human form was like people were like, "Whoa, how yeah. do you know this?" And it's because she was just she had this kind of private tuition, yeah, because it was her only way of getting access yeah, yeah. to it, and like she was really kind of accredited for her. You know, the proportions that she would do the yeah. sculpture in, and everyone's like, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so she practiced at home. Um, yeah, she began clay modelling from an early age, and she practiced at home with the materials available, mostly clay. Yeah. Uh, before moving to Rome in 1852 um, at just 22 years old. Wow. So pretty bold, yeah. Die of TB or grow fast. Exactly. <laughs> Move to Rome and have a great time yeah. and dive TV. But like this was a huge step to take. Mm, that's massive. It's it is massive. Moving to Europe from a you know small town Massachusetts, it's a huge move and it completely changed how people how as a woman you could perceive your career and your future. Mm. Well, you could have a career for one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a huge step to take and it was not only like it not only dramatically advanced her career, but it also yeah carved this pathway for American women, other American women, to do the same instead of being kind of bound in domesticity, mm-hmm. basically. Pretty bold decision, but definitely the right one for Hosmer. Yeah. Hattie! Anyway, I love her. She's an absolute icon. Um, from there, she joined this kind of larky American like expat community um, in Rome, uh, which seemed to include... Uh, a number of lively, prominent women of course. at its kind of epicenter, um, and had like yeah these artistic circles where um, people just say lively when a woman just didn't just sit in windows and gaze longingly <laughs> outwards. It's like she got up this one time; it was amazing. <laughs> She's so lively, so lively. But also, it just sounded like they had a lot of parties, and yeah. it was this kind. You know, they could have. I don't know. Maybe they could all like afford to. They all sort of lived together, shared accommodation, were just, you know, living their best lives. Yeah, sounds doing, great. They were all artists and writers. and yeah. It's like a residency, basically. It was, yeah. yeah. Um, so at this point, Hattie was finally able to use live models for the first time. And between 1853 and 1860, she studied under the renowned Welsh sculptor John Gibson, mm. whose work is available, you know, you can see his work in the National Gallery um, today. Wow, so okay, he's still, yeah. yeah, he was a big deal at the time. Um, and she basically begged him to take her under his wing but essentially Rome was yeah definitely the place to be at mm. this time the writer Henry James ref- uh, refers to this thriving community as 
A strange sisterhood of American lady sculptors. Mm. A strange sisterhood of American strange lady sculptors. Sister. That's one way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah which is quite fun. Um, and heading up this sisterhood was Harriet Hosman, Hosmer and her lover, Claudia Cushman. Fantastic. With whom she had actually moved to Rome. Oh. Um, so Cushman was already a successful actress mm-hmm. uh, and known lesbian. And uh, Hosmer's uh, sculptures had already kind of apparently caught her eye. Ooh. Okay, so she was, yeah, she was this kind of, yeah, an actress who uh, was already in these artistic circles, a little bit older, and was like, ah, oh, yes, Hello. I know of you through your uh, amazing uh, clay, your hands, clay, but- yeah, clay buttocks. <laughs> your clay buttocks are wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, so Harriet soon became like part of pretty much like Cushman's inner circle, um, mm. and the pair were basically this like artistic power couple mm-hmm. uh, at the epicenter of this like booming creative collective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The lovers shared a house together, um, along with writers Matilda Hayes and Sarah Jane Clark, and were perceived from the outside to be a household of jolly bachelor women. Yes. Jolly bachelor women. That's like... Um, yeah, so I love that from the outside, it says like, oh, they're just jolly bachelor women, aren't they yeah. jolly? It's oh, like... Jolly the way they slap each other on the arse and just... <laughs> just always naked and <laughs> painting each other. <laughs> just gals being pals again, Hannah. Um, in actual fact, in terms of kind of juicy lesbian content, like this lot rank pretty high. Oh my god! Um, and there's like a fair amount of affairs and kind of love, love triangles going Fantastic. on. Fantastic, love it. An array of saucy letters were exchanged, um, and they just like wrote. You know, they were all living under the same roof, or at least all like in each other's flats and houses and studios. And mm. they sent all these letters to each other, wrote it all down. But ultimately, they all influenced each other's lives and works of art. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, pretty good time to be alive. But about Claudia Cushman, um, a thespian and lesbian. Uh, how wonderful. She mm-hmm. had a striking vocal range, I read. Wow. Um, and an ability to play both male and female parts. Um, yeah, in the kind of, in the opera. Um, so armed with a kind of notable full uh, contralto singing register she left school after she actually left school after the death of her father i read mm. um when she was 13 so again um you know loss of a parent quite early and despite her kind of academic potential um she left for an ambitious career in the opera oh okay yeah a little bit of childhood trauma leading to kind of outstanding achievement uh, it's the kind of queer story we love to see yep cause and effect um obviously sans parent death but go on to achieve great things yes all worked out in the end. As she was given, um, often given soprano parts, uh, her impressive voice did eventually pack up and she consequently became a stage actress. Oh, okay. And she made her dramatic debut as Lady Macbeth in 1835 mm-hmm. uh, to roaring success and she would often play the role, she used to play the role of, she used to do R- Romeo and Juliet performances with yeah. her younger sister Susan, which is what? just really sweet. So they would, she would play Romeo and her sister <laughs> would play Juliet and they were kind of known for kind of Doing like touring together as yeah. Romeo and Juliet, That's and it's like, funny. oh, the Cushman sisters. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's just really sweet. It just sounds like a really nice kind of creative free free time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Cushman did have many romantic involvements with women during her life, often writers and painters, mm-hmm. um, such as uh, Rosalie Sully, Matilda Hayes, who they lived with, uh, Anne Brewster, and Emma Stebbins. Um, I'm just like reading out her black book here. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as there seemed to be, yeah, there seemed to be a lot of traveling and freedom of movement in Europe uh, during this period. So it kind of just became this hotbed for like female actresses and um, artists to kind of ex- enraging homos. Yeah, express yeah, yeah. themselves creatively and sexually. Uh, lots of parties, a lot of sculpture, a lot of art. Mm. Uh, very free time. Mm. Uh, it just sounds really lovely. Sounds great. So Hosmer and Cushman lived together in an apartment in Rome. Mm. Where's my invite? I would love that. Um, life. And Matilda Hayes, who was actually the romantic partner of Cushman, um, uh, apparently 
left Claudia Cushman for Hattie Hosmer at one point, Matilda Hayes, uh, before ending up back with Cushman in the end. Very awkward. They all sort of lived together. Yeah, wasn't Cushman also with Harriet at this point? So in the... Yeah, apparently. And they all sort of lived together and maybe they weren't exclusive, but it's... There's lots of... It's like a pinball machine. It's really hard. I have to like, write this all down because there's lots of um, accounts where... And obviously some accounts say that they're all just jolly bachelors, like living together, housemates kind of yeah. thing. And you're like, come on. And then Some other like, things... They were poly or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like... Maybe there's a you know an air of, of polyamory in there because they all do live together. They sort of flip between who the kind of primary partners are. They all still live together. So yeah. it's pretty awkward if they weren't If this wasn't cool. or consensual. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Anyway, so um, Matilda Hayes ended up back with um, Cushman in the end. Uh, but yeah, but the trust was gone in their relationship, kind of left in tatters. Um, oh. Sound familiar? Yeah, I mean, it's all very messy. Uh, it's basically the L word, but in like 19th century Rome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's get back to Hattie, because Hattie Officer is who I'm basing this episode on. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, I forgot. <laughs> but that was just a bit about her lover, who she kind of moved in with. Yeah. Um, so Harriet Hosmer was highly skilled and extremely practical. I was about to say um, blessed and highly favoured, which is a drag race reference. <laughs> Um, extremely practical very good with her hands as mm-hmm. you said uh, she sounds fairly butch to be honest yeah. um, you've got to, I think you've got to be quite strong to work with Claire you do stuff. yeah yeah and to like sculpt yeah she's strong huge hands. honestly some of these sculptures like she's off a ladder kind of gay little hat on and yeah good um, what a gay little hat yeah she could design and construct her own machinery mm. and developed new like innovative processes processes in the sculpture field like it's it's cool so while like many of her neoclassical contemporaries sculpted uh, mythological figures Hosmer was unique uh, in that she was mainly drawn to female characters yeah um whose stories aligned with her own strong feminist beliefs her prized work uh, Zenobia in Chains is a perfect comparison um to Zenobia in, Ch- in Zenobia Chains, in Chains okay, yeah, yeah. Is a kind of perfect comparison to her view in the, of the way women were conditioned to patriarchal dependency, while at the same time uh, were placed on pedestals as kind of objects of male desire. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it's all just this big metaphor for like her kind of feminist agenda. Yeah, <laughs> agenda. Yeah, basically, what I'm getting at is um, Hosmer was a trailblazer, um, and this is a quote from her: "I honour every woman who has strength enough to step outside the beaten path when she feels that her walk lies in another, strength enough to stand up and be laughed at." If necessary, that's good. Yeah, that's really fucking good. Cool. Um, that's fucking cool. Of the many artists practicing in Rome uh, at the same time as Hosmer, she was one of the few to actually gain financial independence. So they were all working together. Is this Zenobia and Chains? Yes. Holy shit! This is so detailed and so beautiful. Yeah, it's crazy. She was. It really... looks like a proper classic Roman yeah, yeah. sculpture. She was. I mean, Stunning. with all the kind of neoclassical sculptures at the time, she was up there, and she yeah. was like the female sculpt sculptress, like the most famous American sculptor. And the face of the time. on Zenobia is she is pissed off. Yeah, a lot of these she like really real yeah really sullen like moody women yeah Sorry. so she was the only one to actually gain financial independence mm-hmm. from her purely from her art which is a real testament to like her talents and it was you know it's very public success yeah um she was always known for her fierce independence you know everyone she she never gave up on the kind of horse riding and taking herself off into the wild yeah. and traveling independently uh, she used to wear kind of sharp tailored jackets mm, uh, she had strong. short hair yeah um yeah masculine these... attire and hair all hallmarks. exactly these kind Come of on. misanthropic solo hikes horse rides all over you know adopting this kind of eccentric lifestyle yeah love uh, it. which of course included relationships with women yeah. Um, in later life, she was um, affiliated with the Chicago uh, suffragist group, um, which is called the Queen Isabella Society, mm-hmm. who commissioned her final major work in 1893, the sculpture Isabella of Castile. Isabella of Castile. Isabella of Castile. 
Um, we'll include all of these in, well not all of them, there's so many, but go look her up, um, Google images, there's loads of really beautiful, yeah, very kind of traditional kind of neoclassical sculptures, you know. So, here's another uh, another bit of goss. Um, for 25 years, Hosmer was also romantically involved with Louisa Lady Ashburton, mm. who provided Harriet with a studio in London. I bet she did. Very handy. Uh, mm. Conveniently close to Ashburton's home, um, Ashburton's uh, home estate. This is exactly like noble men providing flats for their mistresses exactly this is that but yeah yeah so but she, it's just my resident artist who I back. she was um and yeah she was the wife of a nobleman yeah. who died yeah, yeah yeah and exactly yeah she was quite a character by the sounds of it so she was also known for her own fiery temper and um insatiable restlessness um, she was say. a Scottish art collector, noblewoman, and widow of Bingham Baring, who yeah. was the second Baron Ashburton, uh, who died of ill health in 1864. Oh. Just a year before, she met Harriet Hosmer mm. um, and became engrossed in her work, ordering several pieces. So she ordered a bunch of pieces and was like, hey, we should hang out in... Oh, do you want this studio I've got? It's yeah, just I, near my house. I just happen to have this immediately right now. <laughs> yeah, so she ordered like several pieces, commissioned a load of, uh, a load of the works, a load of sculptures, uh, and the feeling was mutual. Hosmer was allegedly bowled over by Lady Ashburton's uh, statuesque beauty. Hot down. Hot down. Sounds like Comparing hot... her to a goddess. Um, and to be described as that by an artist is yeah. like, oh, yeah. Supreme flirting Maybe, in the 19th yeah. century. Uh, the pair had quite an intimate and re intense relationship. Probably um, hot as shit. Hot as shit, <laughs> yeah. Um, Hosmer described Lady Ashburton's as erratic and immeasurable. And that's from wow. T. Hosmer herself. Holy hell. Yeah, you have no hell. idea. Um, Lady Ashburton um, socialised in an almost feverish manner mm -hmm. uh, and seemed to collect like noteworthy friends mm -hmm. um, in the same way she collected works of art. So their relationship was often overshadowed by Louise's other intense friendships. Seems like she couldn't just have, like, pals. She had to have, like, my friends. And some of uh, she had a kind of intense connection to the poet Robert Browning, mm. um, whom she also apparently uh, unsuccessfully proposed to in the past. Um, she, I mean, she's her own, she's her own, Look, like, right. ballsy woman. She has all sorts of interests. Exactly. She's very large. She contains multitudes. Yeah, so generally there's a lot of, like, bisexual energy going on in the upper yeah. classes. Um, a bit of promiscuity here and there. Yeah. Um, but essentially, this relationship... Some of it's about power and stuff, too. Definitely. Yeah, yeah definitely. definitely. Especially in, like, yeah, aristocracy and, like, the upper classes. Mm. But essentially, yeah, this relationship was a large and important part of um, Harriet Hosmer's life. I mean, 25 years is, is no small feat. Um, and she would often refer to herself as Louise's hubby or wedded wife in kind of she, their letters. Yeah. Um, a lot of letters to keep up with as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it was, it was pretty serious. And by all accounts, yeah, they were publicly re regarded as a kind of devoted couple and, re you know, often referred to as, like, hubbies and husbands and wives. And it was just, like, nobody really gave a shit or maybe it's because they're women. Like, there's, mm. yeah, lots of speculation. Um, but these open and same-sex relationships were just largely more toler tolerated in Europe at the time. But that's basically because women were considered to have zero sex drive at all. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, So, yeah. no, threat couldn't possibly engage in romantic... Uh, activities with one yeah. another without a man being there, present. There was like, yeah, that a man's not there to see it. Yeah. Does the sex even happen? Yeah. No, of course not. <laughs> Tree falls in the woods. No one's around to hear it. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I could I could go on, um, but I'm going to leave it there for today. Okay. Um, so if you did want to know more about her sculpture work, um, I'll drop a couple of links. Um, but if you do, yeah, if you do happen to be visiting Massachusetts mm -hmm. in the near future, you can find both Hosmer and Cushman's graves uh, featured on the Boston Women's Heritage Trail, as well Amazing. as Hattie's sculpture. Puck and Owl. Mm -hmm. So Puck, there's also this kind of like lounging fawn in the woods, which is like actually a, a kind of a very kind of a feminine lounging um, young fawn kind of, a kind of like yeah, guy, like, like uh, quite androgynous, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, a bit of an androgynous kind of lounging 
is it even torn inwards anyway yeah but they're very like emotional sculptures you know there's lots of people kind of reclining or like the ladies kind of draped in i mean sometimes chains but if it was a kind of more androgynous figure they would be kind of in a state of kind of like napping or mm. um, reclining repose <laughs> repose uh, so there's also the Hosmer School in Watertown, Massachusetts, which is um, her hometown, which is a public elementary school named in her honour, marking the incredible path that Hosmer carved for women in her era. That's so amazing. she's just a real cool lady. And That's really cool. I had no it's idea about like she her. She was just like, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to do what I want, and I'm sorry, but I'm just going to do me this whole time. Yeah, and because she was so bold, you know, 22 years old, moving <laughs> out of America, away from the kind of, you know, the restraints and restrictions of domesticity which was the assumed lifestyle it was complete yeah. she's a maverick yeah. i wonder if as well like i know maybe this is like being quite binary with the gen- genders but like her dad almost raised her like a son mm. yeah like, teaching her to hunt and fish and stuff that was that would probably have traditionally been what he would have done with a son yeah and so maybe like in that way she was imbued with this sense of independence and being like why wouldn't i just go yeah and that's really cool yeah and like, yes that made a huge difference to like lots of people but for her maybe it just didn't seem like a thing at all if we were encouraged to, it would be crazy almost crazy to, to assume that she would follow a life of a, ha- a traditional american oh housewife God, yeah. because that just wasn't in the cards for her no it just wasn't yeah it wasn't written it wasn't what she was gonna do yeah and that's so cool and a lot of women at this time like you can do a lot of research into this um you know the the sisterhood of lady sculptors at the time and there were a lot of you know americans who were over there and and you know and women of color and um uh, women who were um you know native native american women as well who perhaps if they had stayed in like massachusetts or, or new york or kind of outskirts of new york or places in a kind of rural um america wouldn't have had the privileges that they yeah. were afforded in rome yeah. because it was a lot more open and free and, and kind of fluid and even if you know people who weren't part of this kind of thespian lesbian circle would yeah. still yeah. be welcome as this kind of you know the eccentricities were just a lot more um yeah. open and, and free and encouraging of women yeah so interesting it's so cool to kind of get this history yeah and, and, uh, and queerness and feminism are so so intensely intertwined it's it's really cool yeah, yeah. i mean hathi hosmer was definitely on par and respected by her male counterparts and her peers and you know the um like her sculpture teacher teacher in rome didn't take you know didn't take credit and didn't put his name on anything it was very much like i'm gonna pull you up with me because you are are talented you know of course she acted as his student and basically forced her way into his his kind of school and was like you're going to I'm here teach now. me you're going yeah. to you're going to be my mentor yeah. and she was really respected yeah. and like genuinely respected yeah. because she was seen as this kind of yeah this this bold kind of feminist woman I love and that she just like yeah she went and did it alright I think thank that's thank you uh, good for today and thank time. you very much uh, so if you want to get us on social media it's Radio Zaddy X-A-D-D-Y on uh, Twitter on Instagram uh, you can find us on Anchor and there's a link to our WordPress if you want to like have a look at some of the pictures on there and then any more resources that we've put yeah, on there yeah there's some reading materials it's really cool got some links to some of the sources that we've been using and we're trying to build that up it is taking a little while but that's quite cool if you want to have a look and thank you very much for listening I've been Hannah Bestwick and with me has been Daisy Thurston Gent alright take care happy birthday <laughs> Thank and you. happy Halloween. <laughs> Woo. Woo. See Spook you later. Season.